Most of us think that if we eat less and work out more, we will lose weight, but that's simply not the case. In fact, doing so is often a recipe for weight gain. Why? Well, the answer lies in understanding the metabolism and what it takes to function optimally. If you're curious about how the metabolism really works, you're struggling to lose weight and can't figure out why, or if you're simply interested in optimizing your metabolic health, then you need to check out this podcast with Dr. Jade Tita. In this episode that I actually recorded a few years ago with Dr. Tita, episode 29 to be exact, so that was actually over 100 episodes ago, but I think it's such a relevant topic as we start to learn more and more about metabolic dysfunction and the role of nutrition and exercise on weight loss. In fact, I think this is a great complementary episode to number 125, where I discuss why exercise is not a good weight loss tool. So I'm resharing this for you in case you are a newer listener and haven't had a chance to look back into the archives of the Smart Nutrition Made Simple show. Dr. Tita has such a unique and seemingly simplistic way of explaining complex topics in such a confusing area of nutrition and weight loss. I hope you learn as much as I have. And that's what we're discussing on this episode of the Smart Nutrition Made Simple show. Welcome to the show where we help you make smart nutrition simple. If you want proven nutrition strategies to help you build a better body and create the energy to show up for your family without overly restrictive and unrealistic dieting, then you're in the right place. Make sure to subscribe and enjoy this episode. Dr. Jade, how you doing, brother? Man, what's going on, man? Thanks for having me, bro. It's good to see hey, you. Thanks for coming on. I appreciate it. So what's been going on in your world? Well, you know what? I've, uh, we're at the end of the year. And so for me, I am uh, back home with family in North Carolina. I usually spend my time in Southern California. I've been sort of back and forth the last couple of years and uh, I'm eating like crazy, <laughs> training yeah. like crazy. It's kind of cold here and just really uh, working to clean up business. So it's a very busy time of year for, for me right now. So, but I can't complain, man. I mean, everything, everything's great and I'm just enjoying time with family. Good to hear. Much needed for everyone. Yeah. And as you said, you know, we're rolling into the holidays. So by the time this comes out, we'll be after the holidays. But as we're all aware, around this time of year, we can kind of get overwhelmed with all of the things going on, be it work, food, parties, alcohol, all of those kinds of things. And, yeah. and one of your trademarks is working with metabolism. I mean, the name of your business is Metabolic Effect. And so I kind of want to just dive right into that. Yeah. And I want to have you help people get a better understanding of when we use the term metabolism, like what are we talking about? Because it's something that gets thrown around a lot especially now, especially in the weight loss industry, when we talk about like metabolic damage and, and a lot of people are, are familiar with this term and believe that maybe there's something going on with their metabolism to the degree that they're having a hard time losing weight. And so let's just jump in and, and help people get a better understanding. What is metabolism? Why is it important? Yeah. Uh, the simplest way I have found to talk about metabolism is as a stress barometer. Right. So it literally is looking out into the outside world and essentially saying, you know, hey, Jade, what are you dealing with? Hey, Ben, what are you dealing with? What are the stresses in your life and how can I adjust my hormonal nature and all my functions to keep you in balance, given what's going on around you? 
So is the weather getting cold? Are calories available? Are you getting enough sleep or are you sleep deprived? What's going on with your emotional state? All of these things, the metabolism is registering. So think about it this way, your eyes, your ears, your taste, all your sensations have to translate what is going on in the outside world to your inside cells so those cells know how to respond. And the way they do that is through hormones. And so those hormones are essentially sending signals. They're almost like metabolic mailmen, right? They're delivering these letters all around the body saying, hey, muscle, I need to take some energy from you or I'm going to have you make more muscle. Hey, fat, I want you to burn or I want you to gain. Hey, adrenal glands, I want you to put out more stress hormones like cortisol and catecholamines. Hey, gut, I want you to release certain incretins like GLP and GIP to keep you hungry or to make you uh, have cravings. And so the body is doing this all the time for one simple reason, to essentially keep you in survival mode, right? It wants you to survive. So it's always seeking balance. So if you can remember that, that the metabolism is just simply a stress barometer, you can start understanding why it runs into problems, right? It starts yeah. to run into problems very quickly when you keep it, when you don't let it seek its natural balance. And so the metabolism simply responding to things that we're doing in our everyday life, or that's things that are happening to us, a combination of those. And so what's happening when people start to experience if for lack of a better term, issues with their metabolism, or for, for example, let's say we have a lot of people that uh, come to us and they say, I'm having a hard time losing weight. Yeah. What's going on? And obviously there's so many different things going on, but from a metabolic standpoint and from a metabolic damage standpoint, what could possibly be going on there? Yeah, very simply, right? The metabolism is essentially looking out there and saying it has its own goals. Like it doesn't give a damn whether you, Ben, or me, Jade, or like, I want to look good in a bathing suit, or I got a high school reunion I want to, you know, get ready right. for. It doesn't care about our vanity concerns. It's just essentially saying, you give me the right inputs, and if I feel stable and balanced, I will do the things that I'm going to do. And so, for example, if you create a calorie deficit, right, there's two things required for weight loss. One is a calorie deficit, and the next is hormonal metabolic balance, right? Because the metabolism is always seeking homeostasis. Now, if you create a calorie deficit that's too big, that can be a stress for the body because it goes, hey, if I do this for any period of time, I am going to run into problems and potentially starve because from the metabolism's point of view, that's all it really cares about. Do I have enough food to live and to breed, right? Um, if I go too low in calories for too long, the metabolism says, uh-oh, I'm running into problems and I better start to conserve my energy. Not only should I start conserving my energy by burning off less, but I better also increase hunger and increase cravings for highly palatable, sugar-rich, fat-rich, calorie-rich foods. And so what people don't understand is that their very nature of trying to push the metabolism to do what they want it to do is causing the metabolism to push back against them. So, you know, you and I have seen this. I know you've been in this field and you're, you know, highly adept in this world like I am. And we've probably, we've seen it come and go, haven't we? We've essentially mm -hmm. seen people describe metabolism as a calculator. People describe right. metabolism as a chemistry set. The mm -hmm. best model to understand metabolism, as far as we know it right now, is as a boomerang or a seesaw or a pendulum. 
if we're going to give it a simple model, we probably want to give it the thermostat model. In other words, if we push against it through exercising more, eating less of anything, it's going to push back against us to seek balance. And so what we need to do is get smart and work with the metabolism, which I'm sure we'll get into here, but I'll break it down really quick for you. To me, I see this in three stages. If you go too far in diet and exercise, what happens is the metabolism begins to compensate. This is the first stage. How do you know the metabolism is compensating? Well, you'll see increased hunger. You'll see energy fluctuations. It'll become unpredictable and unstable. You'll see cravings. Uh, you'll see sleep disturbances, mood disturbances. You may see changes in libido. All of these things will begin to change. You will also begin to see, it's not fun, but you'll begin to see either your weight loss goals beginning to slow or reverse. This is metabolic compensation. Mm -hmm. This is actually pretty easy to deal with if you understand what you're doing. All you need to do is change your approach. There's nothing inherently wrong with eat less, exercise more, except for the fact that it's the only tool we think we have and we do it to the extreme. And in about four to 10 days, based on research, doing that, the metabolism is gonna say, sorry, Ben, sorry, Jade, I'm done. I feel stressed out. I'm getting out of balance. I'm gonna push back against you. And next thing you know, we hit a plateau. Now, if we keep doing this, right? Like we know what this is like. I remember being young and being in the gym and being like, okay, so metabolism's slowing down. I'll just eat even less and exercise mm -hmm. even more. I'm just going to push and be more motivated. That pushes you into metabolic resistance, where now all of a sudden, for your effort, you're getting a little bit of results, but nothing in comparison to what you feel you should. And finally, if you keep doing it, we get into a place we are now calling metabolic damage. It's just a term to help people understand. It's not a diagnostic term. But meta metabolic damage essentially just means that you've done this so much that now all of a sudden, you're running into digestive issues. That protein shake that used to not bother you is now giving you gas and bloating. You are now um, having uh, insomnia. You are now having no libido, or if you're a woman, you're losing menstruation. Uh, if you're a man, you're, you're beginning to uh, have mood issues and feel either depressed or anxious. You may even get diagnosed, maybe, maybe not, with hypothyroid or Hashimoto's thyroiditis or some other condition, irritable bowel syndrome or something like that. These are the stages that we go through, and I can help you guys break it down into what you want to do to help deal with these, but I have to teach you uh, one more thing about how the metabolism works. It's not just eat more, exercise less, compared to eat less, exercise more. There are two other ways to deal with that, but I'll slow down here to see if you have any clarifications you want to make into what I said or any questions you want to cover more in depth. I think that makes a lot of sense, and I think it's extremely helpful for us to think about it that way, especially as we go into the new year, especially as we go into sort of the peak diet time of the year where people are going to start eating less, right? They're going to start exercising more with the perception that that's all that they need to do because that's what we're told is calories in, calories out, right? And so that people understand when they, yes, it works for a period of time, However, that simply, you can't just keep reducing your calories. You can't just, of course, start continuously increasing your amount of exercise because we'll start to experience metabolic compensation, the factors that affect hunger, energy cravings. And then, of course, as you said, start to experience some of the factors around the term metabolic damage. So I think that's really helpful. So 
what should people focus on instead in order to create that caloric deficit, right? Because that's still important, but as a means to continue to allow the metabolism to function as uh, in such a healthy way as possible. Yeah. I'll give you a new model to look at metabolism. I call it the four metabolic toggles. And we have to cover this first to make sure that everybody listening understands what the solution will be. Okay. So first of all, we oftentimes think that there's two places to live as far as your metabolism is concerned. One place to live is the couch potato, right? Sit on the couch, free-based Doritos, drink a bunch of Coke, don't do anything, right? We right. know what that looks like. But actually, a lot of us are probably doing that right now during the holidays. That I call eat more, exercise less. Most people know that, right? The couch potato model. Now, you alluded to this. Most people think to combat that, they simply do the reverse eat less, exercise more, the dieting model, okay? Right. Now, isn't it interesting that if you take a couch potato and you take a hardcore dieter, remember we talked about there's two things required for fat loss, a caloric deficit and hormonal balance. Well, you know you have the caloric deficit if you're losing weight, right? You know you have the hormonal balance if sleep, hunger, mood, energy, cravings, all of these things are stable, right? I have an acronym I use, HEC, H-E-C, hunger, energy, and cravings. If your HEC is in check, your metabolism and hormones are balanced. If your HEC is out of check, you can be pretty sure that they are out of balance. So isn't it funny that the couch potato and the dieter both have HEC out of check oftentimes? The couch potato is often hungry, having energy lows, and craving stuff like crazy. So is the dieter who's eating salads and running like crazy. Why? Yeah. Because they're both stressing out their metabolism. Okay. Now, we have two other places that we could live. One is what I call the eat less, exercise less approach. And this is the traditional hunter-gatherer type approach, or maybe the traditional Parisian European model, where people are not eating a lot of calories. They're also not moving a lot, which actually helps them not eat a lot of calories. I'll say that again. They're not exercising a lot, which makes it easier to decrease their calories because when you're exercising a lot, that can make you hungry. Now, they are moving. They do walk, right? We have to walk to get from place to place. Walking is interesting, though, because it's one of the only things that sensitizes the body to insulin, lowers cortisol, and does not seem to raise hunger levels the same way exercise will. So an eat less, exercise less approach allows you to create a slight calorie deficit, just enough to get fat loss, but not so much to stress out your mm -hmm. hormones. And so that is another place we can go. We also can go to the eat more, exercise more approach, which is probably something that you and I, Ben, lean towards, right? Where we, this is the athlete approach, right? This is like, okay, I'm going to eat a little bit more. And I'm also going to exercise a little bit more. And by the way, when I'm exercising a lot more, that makes me want to eat a lot more. No athlete in their right mind, I always say, say this, is going to decrease calories while training for and engaging in their sport. It would be heretical. It would just be stupid. They don't do that. So isn't it funny that people want to look like athletes, hmm. but instead of using an eat more, exercise more approach, they try to use the eat less, exercise more approach and fail miserably. Exactly. So now Ben and I have laid out this four part toggle, right? So it's eat more, exercise less, couch potato, eat less, exercise more, dieter, eat less, exercise less, traditional hunter gatherer, eat more, exercise more, modern day athlete. The modern day athlete and the traditional hunter-gatherer 
these approaches can create a deficit that is more gentle and less stressful. Now, I don't know how many people are watching this in video or if this is just audio, but what I'm doing with my hands is I'm gonna show a spread. So right here, this high part of my left hand and my right hand is basically wide. There's a wide gap there. That calorie deficit is stressful for the metabolism. This one is not, right? It's far less. So in other words, if we create a calorie deficit of 800 calories to 1,000 calories a day, the metabolism is going to register that. If we create one that is 200, 300 calories per day, maybe less so. So what I'm saying is the eat less, exercise less, eat more, exercise more is more stable for the body. None of these are inherently bad though, right? They can be used. Right now, um, you know, I'm in holiday mode. I'm in eat more, exercise less mode over the holidays. That is not a problem for me because most of the time I'm spending time in either ELEL or EMEM. And so it's actually beneficial for my metabolism because it's only going to last four to 10 days and in an otherwise balanced metabolic state. Sometimes I go on vacation and I go on, I fast a little bit and I I hike and I bike and I do all this kind of stuff and that puts me in an eat less, exercise more state, but I'm only on vacation for four to 10 days, so I never reach compensation. I live in these other two states most of the time. And so when you understand this sort of four-part metabolic framework, now you can understand that if you're in metabolic compensation, that typically probably means that you are staying in eat less, exercise more too long. In order to right. combat that, all you need to do is move into another toggle. You can move into eat more, exercise less. Some people do this with refeeds. Yep. Or you can go into eat less, exercise less, or eat more, exercise more, and this will usually get the metabolism responding again. Now, if you're in metabolic resistance, right, now you're probably going to want to toggle back and forth between EM, EM, and EL, EL. Stay in EL, EL for a little bit, switch it up, go to EM, EM, going back and forth. If you ever get to metabolic damage, your only option really is EL, EL for a period of time until the metabolism starts responding again. But now we have far more tools. Is that, I know you're familiar with these concepts, but I just want to make sure that uh, you know, the listeners, does that make sense or is there any clarification we need to make? I think it makes a lot of sense. I think that for our listeners, they're pretty smart in terms of we've talked about kind of intermittent fasting, we've talked about caloric deficits, we've talked about over-exercising and what it can do to metabolism. And so just helping people understand the eat more, exercise more, eat less, exercise less, and that it's okay to have periods where you're basically just chilling out. And if it's a day where you're just not moving very much, uh, for a lot of people that have, you know, office uh, desk jobs, um, then it's going to be a day and maybe they're not going to be exercising the understanding like, okay, you probably should keep your calories relatively low on that given day. But then maybe it's like Friday, Saturday, Sunday, they're weekend warriors and they love to go hiking and biking and start doing a lot of exercise or structured workouts. Then it's like, okay, well, you should ramp up your calories and just the nature of working through those two frameworks is going to be what's going to help them ultimately create a caloric deficit, assuming their weight, that weight loss is a goal, but also do it without negatively affecting their metabolic output. Yeah. And, and you know, you said it perfectly, right? Because I would say, you know, people oftentimes go, they go, but Jade, there are people 
who can live and eat less, exercise more, and see results. Truth of the matter is, most of those people, I don't even think they exist. What happens is those individuals are more living in either an ELEL or an EMEM state. You and I have been doing this a while, both of us. You know, I'm sure that we do this naturally. So it's not, some people are going to listen to this. And if they're savvy, they're going to be like, yeah, I do this naturally. And just like you said, exactly. It's no like earth shattering thing here that we've come up with. It's simply to say, if you look at what people do naturally who are successful, they typically naturally do this. On the days they're training hard, they eat and fuel that workout. On the days they're chilling, they typically don't eat, right? And you can do that in many different ways. You described it as sort of the weekend warrior who eats more and trains more on the weekend and then during the week sort of chills out, maybe does some intermittent fasting, stuff like that, doesn't do a whole lot. You also can do a two-week on, two-week off type approach. You're going to be in ELEL for two weeks. You're going to be in EMEM for two weeks. I like to do this with the seasons. So I'm coming into winter. I'm probably going to start doing a, a keto type approach and an intermittent fasting approach because it's a really nice uh, type of ELEL approach. When you're typically when I'm doing keto and doing a lot of intermittent fasting, I don't have the same amount of energy that I would otherwise to uh, be doing high intensity workouts, right? And be doing all that kind of stuff. I stick to mainly traditional lifting, lots of walking, that kind of stuff. And by the way, hunter gatherers, right? Think about it. As humans, during the winter, we typically entered an ELEL state. We were fine. If we found animals, they were typically lean because they, it was in the middle of the winter. We couldn't gather tubers and stuff like that. We didn't have a lot of vegetation around. So we lived in an ELEL state. Now, when spring came along, now all of a sudden the animals are coming out of hibernation. They're very lean. There's not a lot of calories on them. Food is still not abundant yet because there's not a lot of roughage but it's getting warmer and we're moving around a lot. This is an eat uh, less, exercise more state. That's the dieter state, springtime. Then when summer comes around, food becomes abundant. Animals are putting on more calories. We're moving around a lot still, right? That's an eat more, exercise more state. And then in the fall, now we start getting tubers and starch-rich foods and the animals are getting fatter for the coming winter. And now for a period of time, we're in and eat more, exercise less state. And so what happens is if you look at this, you even can do this with the seasons, right? So you can do it day to day. You can do it week, day, weekend, like Ben described. You can do it just I'm going to toggle back and forth based on my menstrual period. Maybe I do in the follicular phase, I do EMEM, which has been shown in a recent study actually to be pretty beneficial for women because estrogen in that follicular time is more like testosterone and helps them burn more fat and gain more muscle. And I'll do eat less, exercise less after my ovulation and before my period. And then I can also do it seasonally, like we just talked about. And all of a sudden, uh, some of the natural things that you and I do, Ben, and some of the listeners do start to make sense. Mm -hmm. And they realize that, oh, I get it now. Eat less, exercise more is actually not what I'm doing when I get my best results. I don't want to do that for long. By the way, I'll say one more thing and then I'll shut up here. Once you are living in this eat more, exercise more, and eat less, exercise less state, now all of a sudden when you do go back into the dieting state, the eat less, exercise more state for a time, man, it works great, right? Because you're only doing it, your metabolism is healthy, flexible, you're only going to be doing it for a couple weeks maybe, and all of a sudden you can get amazing results from that just like you used to 
back when you were young mm -hmm. before you did damage to your metabolism. Yeah, that's really helpful. A few points of clarification for the females listening, the follicular phase is the first two weeks, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but yes. the first two weeks of their menstrual cycle. Yes. First day of bleeding, right? Yes. It starts day one and then up to 14 days for the typical menstrual cycle, which women will tell you there is no such thing as a typical menstrual cycle. It's all, you know, it's not 28 days. It varies from woman to woman, but from menses, first day of bleeding to ovulation, this is the follicular phase where the follicle that holds the egg is developing. That's why they call it the follicular phase. This is a time of low progesterone. A lot of people don't know this, but women in the follicular phase have the same amount of progesterone roughly in their bloodstream as a man does. Mm -hmm. And so estrogen is rising, progesterone is low. Estrogen in women is really interesting because it is a global fat burner. It also has some muscle building effects like testosterone. However, it does uh, have an effect where it causes you to store fat in particular areas. Um, this is what gives women that beautiful hourglass shape we all love, but hips, thighs, breast. That's where estrogen tends to slow fat release, but it is a global fat burner. Then after ovulation, you move into the luteal phase because when that follicle pops and releases that egg, you form what's called the corpus luteum, which becomes mm -hmm. the source of progesterone. And that's how this other phase gets its name. The luteal phase is a time where estrogen is still high, but progesterone dominates. So they're both high. And this is a time where you're a little bit more insulin resistant and uh, you're, you're not as able to, you know, sort of handle stress the same way you may have been, uh, or you're not getting the, the, the same benefits from estrogen because progesterone opposes it. So this is a time to chill out a little bit. Menses, when estrogen and progesterone abruptly fall off, remember as a woman, you have receptors for estrogen all over the body, including in the brain. And so brain chemicals like GABA, serotonin, and dopamine will change right around menses. This can cause cravings, irritability, this kind of stuff. There are a few things you can do. Cocoa is one very uh, cool thing that you can do. Cocoa powder, not chocolate, because you don't want the sugar and the, and the fat in there, but you can do cocoa powder and water, which contains anandamide, which is a cannabinoid that can help GABA-like uh, interactions. You have um, phenylethylamine, which is a dopamine precursor. You have preformed serotonin in cocoa powder. So it's a very good brain stabilizer, which may be one of the reasons, we don't know because I don't think this has been studied, but it may actually be one of the reasons women tend to crave chocolate during the menstrual period more so than other, any other times. So that's one clinical pearl that I can uh, uh, give you in that regard. Obviously, men don't go through this hormonal change month to month. So if they're going to cycle it, they can just do it how they see fit. One month in EL, EL, one month in EM, EM, one week, one week, two weeks, two weeks. But for women who are menstruating, they may want to use this to their advantage. Perfect. Yeah. And that segues perfectly into, I wanted to mention carb cycling because you're talking about just basically, we're looking at just ways to affect our caloric intake and our energy output. And so intuitively, calorie cycling or, or carb cycling, if you will, any way to modulate your calories like that and exercise could be a good tool to utilize and why it's effective based on your eat more, exercise more, eat less, exercise less model. Is that correct? That's absolutely correct. And you know, you bring up a really astute point because obviously carbs get such a bad rap. They're actually my yeah, favorite yeah. macronutrient because of their power to move the metabolism in different directions. Cut carbs, you move the metabolism more than you otherwise could. Add a high carbohydrate meal, 
you move metabolism, time your carbs around weight training, you move your metabolism. So to me, people need to get way more savvy about their carbohydrates. And I know you are, but other people tend to be like, I'm either going to go low or increase my carbs. Well, it's really about, you know, carb type, carb amount and carb timing. Right. Yes. And so you, you really want to be working with these types of things. So if you're in an EL, EL state, then your carb type is going to be mainly vegetables and low sugar fruits. If you're in an EM, EM state, your carb types may be including some starchy types of foods. I, I would want them there. Right. You yep. probably would too. Yep. Also, if carb timing, you know, have your vegetables anytime during the day, but have your starches either before and or after in this workout window, yes. right? Maybe an hour before and, you know, up to two hours after, although that window has been shown to be much bigger than we think it is. But these things can be highly valuable. So if you're really going to be savvy here, it is absolutely silly in my mind to forego carbohydrates when they can be so useful, more useful probably than any other macronutrient in their ability to help you multitask, which is something the metabolism is not great at, meaning burn some fat and gain muscle at the same time. Perfect. And again, a perfect segue into diving into this, what most people get in trouble with, which is eat less, exercise more. And so you've seen plenty of clients throughout your time that are coming into you saying, I have this body fat that will not budge, right? Around the stomach, around the butt, around the thighs. And I'm exercising hours upon hours. I'm barely eating anything. I won't touch a carb if my life depended on it. And I think you know, this is giving so much insight to people into why food's okay, why eating more food than what you're used to may be okay and necessary, and why carbohydrates are certainly necessary. But how do we get someone to start to walk back out of that, out of that situation that they're in? Give them permission to eat more food and potentially exercise less if they're experiencing metabolic resistance. Mm -hmm. But almost more importantly, because you've talked about ways to do that, but almost more importantly is like, what should they expect to see as progress? Because invariably, this is something that's very scary for them to experience is they come to you saying, well, you know, I don't know what to do. I'm at my wits end. I can't, I'm not losing weight. I feel like I'm, you know, doing everything in my power, not eating anything, over-exercising. And the last thing that people want to see is the scale to tip the opposite direction, which could potentially happen if they start eating more food. How do you give people permission to do that, help them understand that it's okay and necessary? And, and sort of what, what do we look for when we start to walk back that track? Yeah. Well, that's remind people two things. What is required for fat loss? Number one, a calorie deficit. Number two, hormonal balance. You know you're in a calorie deficit if you're losing weight. You know you have hormonal balance if hunger, energy, cravings, heck is in check. Now, heck is sort of a euphemistic term for all biofeedback, right, for all situations. So I, hunger, energy, and cravings are the most important ones, but sleep, mood, or other digestion, libido, exercise performance, exercise recovery, all of that kind of stuff. So the first thing that we want to do if we are stuck is we want to get heck in check first. That is the first thing. Mm -hmm. Heck has to be in check first. And during that process of heck getting in check, you do this enough times, you know some people are going to gain weight in the short period. But as long as their heck is moving to be in check, this is a very positive thing. 
I also want to make one other clarification here that I know you know, but the listeners may not know. The biggest reason why people come in and say, I'm doing all the right things and not seeing results is because they don't know what the right things are. They think the right things are diet and exercise. There are four components that you really need to understand for metabolism. I call it the four M's of metabolism. It's mindset, mindfulness, mindful living. It's movement, right? And I'm doing this with my hands because I see it as a pyramid. At the base of the pyramid is mindfulness and and mindful living. One step up on the pyramid is then movement. Up from there is meals. And at the top of the pyramid is metabolics. And by metabolics, I mean all the things that move the metabolism. This would be exercise, supplements, drugs, that kind of thing. Most people think it's just meals and metabolics, meals and metabolics, meals and metabolics. And they don't even realize there are two things that are way more important than meals and metabolics, which is mindfulness and movement. Now, what do I mean by mindfulness? I mean rest-based living. I mean all the things that take stress off the stress barometer, right? Leisurely walking, sex and physical affection, massage, naps and sleep, hot baths, sauna therapies, spa treatments, facials and manicures and pedicures, anything that decreases stress on the system. How many people you know who are having trouble losing weight are like, oh, I need to spend an extra hour in bed versus I need to be an extra Mm -hmm. hour on the treadmill. Totally. Mindfulness is key here. Mindful living, doing everything to lower stress hormones. Movement is another one because we now know, and I know you know this, Ben, and probably your savvy listeners know this too, but I I would be remiss if I missed it. Non-exercise associated thermogenesis or NEAT. Now we know that the metabolism, the most changeable part of the metabolism is this NEAT component. So people who don't, aren't familiar with this term, this just means activities of daily living, gardening, walking to the mailbox, doing laundry, taking walks, uh, you know, shoveling snow, all of these things are the most important aspects of metabolism. As a matter of fact, we now know through research, if you take someone who sits all day in a cubicle, then goes to CrossFit and does a 30-minute high-intensity workout, then goes home and sits on the couch, they will fare worse in probably health and even weight loss than someone who's up and moving all day long but does not go do any intense exercise, which tells you movement and exercise need to be considered two different things. So this hypothetical person who's telling me and you, I'm doing everything right. And they're just looking at meals and metabolics, meals and metabolics, and are missing mindfulness and movement. They have to get that squared away first. Now, once they get that squared away, then we can go back to the the question of, are you really stuck or did you just move these two big pieces? Now, if you're doing all four of these pieces, right, and you're stuck, and you're in metabolic damage, let's say, which essentially means you pushed your metabolism so far that now you're actually sick and may even have a diagnosis that you're sick. You got no choice but to do eat less, exercise less, which is a lot of movement, very little intense exercise, and a very sparse diet. How will you know you'll start seeing results? I'll tell you exactly what's going to happen. You are going to gain weight at first. You'll know you're making progress when heck starts getting back in check then you're going to start to lose weight again. And I'm going to tell you right now, and I I know this is going to seem shocking to people. I've done this thousands of times. This can take from three months at a minimum to 15 to 18 months to get this squared away. Sorry, that's just the reality of the situation when you're in metabolic damage. Now, metabolic resistance typically takes 
between one week and 12 weeks. You're still going to see the same thing, though. Oftentimes, you're going to see a blip up in weight in the first week or two. And once heck gets back in check, then you can start working with your calories and macros again. With metabolic compensation, really, there's no, it's very easy to do in a matter of days or within a week. If you just switch up your approach, you're going to see what happens here. But a lot of people don't understand this. If you're in metabolic damage, really in that place, it can take a very long time. If you're in metabolic resistance, you need to be one to three months. If you're in metabolic compensation, within a week, you'll be back past. But again, it is, is your heck getting back in check? That's the first sign you're doing the right thing. If you're looking better, right? Absolutely worst thing you can do is, oh, I'm losing weight again and I'm miserable. My heck's out of check. I'm hungry. I'm craving. I'm trying to willpower it. You're actually doing more damage to your metabolism. What are some tools that you use to help people assess their heck to create more awareness around what they're actually experiencing? Yeah. So hunger, right, is a physical sensation. It's felt in the gut. So you kind of have to teach people this. It's an empty situation. feels empty. Growling in the stomach. Emptiness in the stomach. Nausea in the stomach. We all know what that feels like. You need to understand hunger and how it's different from cravings. Cravings are in the brain. Sitting on the boredom eating is a craving, right? When you get full and you feel full, but then you crave dessert and you want a taste of something different, that is a craving. And so it's getting very clear on what is hunger and what is a craving. Once you understand that, you can understand what are the best things to help with hunger. Fiber, protein, and water, right? So you want to focus on fiber, protein, and water. To make this easy, think soups, salads, scrambles, and shakes. Soups, salads, scrambles, and shakes. By shakes, I mean protein shakes. Eat 90% of your meals in terms of soups, salads, uh, scrambles, and shakes without a lot of starch, and then add enough, just enough, because that will take care of the hunger piece. Mm And you can add just enough salt, sugar, alcohol, fat, and starch to quell the brain cravings, but not so much that it makes you overeat, right? So this is how you want to think about this. It's very important people understand the difference. Salt, sugar, fat, starch is really for cravings. You want enough, but not too much. Uh, Protein, fiber, and water is really for the hunger component. Also, another tool I use is a tool of buffer foods and trigger foods. So I'll ask you, Ben, I'll tell you mine, but like for me, If I have a glass of wine with dinner, I am far less likely to have dessert. I'm more likely to have salad and a nice lean piece of protein or something like that. If I don't have wine, I'm more likely to eat starch, have dessert, and crave. So wine for me is a buffer food. Now, is it the same for you or is it different? Some people like have wine and they crave dessert. They want more wine. They end up overeating. I have wine, I undereat. Yeah, no, that like last night... I was basically just sitting around all day doing work. I, I didn't even exercise yesterday and I found I wasn't terribly hungry. I had a glass of wine um, before dinner. I was feeding the kids and I barely even ate any dinner, didn't have really any cravings. So pretty similar to you, I find intuitively that's, that's pretty comparable. Yeah. So, and we all know, right? I know some people listen to this are like, are you crazy? If I had wine, I'd end up drinking a whole bottle. I'd want dessert. I'd start craving sweets, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So for you and I, we know that wine is a buffer food for us. For other people, they need to understand wine's a trigger food for them. For me, peanut butter is a trigger food for me. Mm-hmm. I take one spoonful of peanut butter during the day, 
and I will end up eating that whole thing of peanut butter that day. Other people are like, oh, I have a spoonful of peanut butter and it satisfies me. So we need to understand our individual buffer foods and trigger foods and use lots of buffer foods and avoid trigger foods. And by the way, a Her this has nothing to do with whether it's healthy or not. A Hershey's Kiss can be a buffer food for some people. I know my mom can have a, a little piece of chocolate and it keeps her from overeating later. I eat that Hershey's Kiss. I'm going to yeah. crush all of them. Yeah, yeah, man. Forget it. That's, that's definitely uh, game over Same for, for me. Same for me. And so we need to understand this because there are some people that can be like, well, uh, we're told don't eat that. Never mm. eat that. That's bad for you. Well, what if that thing is a buffer food for you? What if having small couple bites of some Haagen-Dazs ice cream actually keeps you from crushing two bags of potato chips? We need to understand this stuff. We have individual metabolisms, different psychology, and different personal preferences. So this buffer food, trigger food concept is another tool that I use. And a final one I'll give you guys is understanding preloads, which is sort of another sort of buffer food, trigger food concept. So for example, let's say when I get ready to go over to my mother's and father's for our Friday night Italian dinners, because now I'm home in Winston-Salem, we do these big Italian dinners and people just eat like crazy. When I know that's gonna happen, what I do is typically fast all day, which could, for me, end up making me eat 4,000 calories in one sitting. So fasting can be good or bad for people. If you fast and then you can eat normally, that's fantastic, right? But if you fast and as a result of fasting, you eat a whole cheesecake later, that's not good. We now live in an environment where we can consume, anyone who's been to the Cheesecake Factory knows this, you can mm -hmm. consume four or 5,000 calories in a sitting when you only need 2,000 calories for the day. So you have to be careful that fasting triggers that. But if you use preloads, especially protein preloads, a protein shake drink uh, taken 30 minutes before you go to dinner, you will actually uh, get maybe 200 calories from that protein shake and it causes you to eat 800 to 1,000 calories less at dinner as a result of it. And so that is the kind of thinking that we want to do when we're thinking about keeping heck in check and preloads can uh, do that. The, the final thing I'll say here is let's say you do overeat, right? Let's say you, because we're all going to have those times. Well, then weight training and it becomes the dominant form of exercise that you want to do because even if you are in a calorie excess, you don't necessarily have to be storing fat. You could be building muscle. So do some exercise that forces the body to say, oh, I need, I could use those extra calories Jade and Ben ate at Thanksgiving dinner or Christmas dinner and use it for repair, recovery, and adaptation from my workouts, which is why weightlifting becomes another great tool. So understand the difference between hunger and cravings, understand buffer and trigger food concepts, use preloads, and then if you do really mess up, right, then understand that's when you don't wanna go do a 5K that day, you wanna go lift some heavy weights, do some squats and deadlifts and stuff like that to drive those extra calories into muscle gain rather than fat gain. Yeah, man, that's gold. Uh, that's that's really helpful stuff um, that I hope people can, you know, start to understand because a lot of this comes down to intuition and just listening to your body, as Jade was talking about, you know, with with regard to the types of foods that are triggers and can potentially sabotage us or satiate us. And you just got to listen to your body and not subscribe to what your next door neighbor's doing. The fact that, you know, they're doing this and they've lost 20 pounds, it must be the right thing for you. And when in reality, it may very well not be because they have completely different lifestyles and stress levels and all of these types of things. So 
we talked about hunger energy cravings and those are kind of more subjective measures of what's going on hormonally talk about more objective measures specifically heart rate and what we can do something that i've started to utilize more frequently is heart rate and heart rate variability as being more objective measures of what's actually happening with hormones and metabolism how do we use that and why is it important yeah it's i'm so glad you brought this up because we now have the ability to measure heart rate variability very simply we have there's apps now that use the light on the phone and just a finger and i use it every morning just like you Mm -hmm. so to slow down here uh what is heart rate variability well it's a measure of stress in the metabolic system so remember your metabolism is nothing but a stress barometer heck being in check or out of check is a subjective way of assessing whether your metabolism is stressed out as ben's pointing out we actually have objective ways to do that now too heart rate variability being one of them, which measures the, the difference between autonomic nervous system functions, sympathetic and parasympathetic, sympathetic being the stressed out system, parasympathetic being the rest system. So heart rate variability is really great. What you do is you wake up first thing in the morning, you take your mobile device, you have this app on there, you put your finger over top, and what heart rate variability does is measure the beat-to-beat variance in the heart rate. So the heart goes lub-dub, lub-dub, lub-dub. We are used to counting the differences between the number of lub-dubs. Well, heart rate variability counts the distance between each lub-dub. So we might think that the heart's like a metronome. It's not. It goes more like this. Lub-dub, 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 lub-dub. So there's a variance. And the degree of that variance means uh, a healthier heart and a more balanced metabolism. So this is what heart rate variability is doing. So now how do we use it? Once you start understanding when the heart rate variability spikes and when it lowers, which um, spiking on these things uh, is a bad thing and uh, actually moving either direction too far. So you have a zone of healthy heart rate variability. Drop below that, it can throw you off. Go above that, that is an indication your system is being overstressed. Now you can begin to compare that to Am I overtraining, right? I don't know. My hex seems maybe it's in check, maybe not. I'm getting good results. What's my heart rate variability doing? Is it out of range? And this would begin to teach you how to structure your exercise. I look at it like this with exercise, by the way. I give myself red days, yellow days, and green days. Green days are super intense. I'm ready to go, man. And this is when my heck is in check. I'm feeling high energy and my heart rate variability is typically pretty good. Yellow days is where I spend 80% of my training time, which is um, my heck is sort of like this. I don't have as much energy as I would like. I'm not gonna use super intense weights. I'm kind of gonna go through the motions. I'm just gonna get in the gym. And then red days are like, I gotta take off because my heck is out of check. I'm feeling exhausted and or my heart rate variability is gone. Most people try to do, right? Just like they try to go between a couch potato and a and a dieter, they do the same thing with training. They're either green or red, green or red, which is why me and my friends always laugh that our our workout sessions are one day on, one month off, because we train so hard (laughs) on that one day, we end up taking a whole month off because we beat the hell out of ourselves. So what happens is if you're one of these people who does one week on and then ends up taking three weeks off, understand that's because you that one week you went on was way too stressful for your metabolism. So start breaking it down 80-20 rule is my rule. 80% of the time, I'm yellow. 10% of the time, I am hardcore intense. 10% of the time, I'm off. 
right? So this is how I look at this and heart rate variability can help you. Heck and heart rate variability together is the best way uh, to do this. And heart rate, you can also use this during your workout if you want, just a, a trick here. The degree to which your heart rate will recover, heart rate recovery, if you do a high bout of exercise, right? Let's say me and Ben are both right next to each other doing intervals uh, on the treadmill or something, and we both do a minute hard, and then we measure our heart rate, and we see how fast it falls in that minute of rest. So we're going one minute on, one minute off. Let's say that both of ours drop 20 beats, which is what you should be. It should be 20 beats in a minute at least for a healthy heart. So we start out, Ben's drops 20, mine drops 20. We do another, we rest for a minute, we do another minute. Ben's drops 20, I drop 20. We do another minute. Now all of a sudden, I drop 10, Ben drops 20. Me dropping 10 is telling me that my system is already getting overly stressed, that the sympathetic parasympathetic balance is tilting in the negative direction. So I could cut my workout short at that time and start easing up on my intervals or decrease my workout volume, whereas Ben could keep going. So I use this for people who are in metabolic damage. When they start to add exercise back, I teach them heart rate recovery method so they don't overdo it. So these are some tools that people can use. This has been a relatively new light bulb for me because as of late, I found myself, because it's a new tool that I've started to use, but what I was noticing over the past several months was basically come Monday, I crush myself, right? Monday, crush myself Tuesday, let's say hard leg workout Monday, hard, hard upper body training session Tuesday, Wednesday would be like an off or like just a low intensity cardio day. And then I would find that basically I was still crushed Thursday, Friday, Saturday. And so I think this is really relevant for people, but especially trainers, because there's a lot of trainers listening that work with clients and whose clients experience similar type of things is it's not about all about just beating them down every single session. In fact, there, we really need to be cognizant of actually what's going on with our clients, regardless of what they tell us, you know, regardless of how they tell us they're feeling, because there's so many clients that are just type A, like, I'll do whatever you tell me, robots, and, you know, we'll go along with it when we're really not doing them any justice. I like giving people permission to take yellow and red days and like, look, if you get, you know, now there's days where I get to the gym and I kind of give myself the opportunity to get warmed up. And if I'm just not feeling it, like normally spend five minutes or so warming up and usually I start to switch on and I'm good to go. But there's certain days where you are just not feeling it and giving yourself the permission to just you'd say, you know what, I'm just, I'm going to go. Yeah. And, and, and I'll explain, I'll explain to people how I do this. Let's say, for my workout, right? I'm going in and I have, uh, I like doing a lot of the CrossFit style stuff right now. So let's say I'm going in and I got bench press, heavy bench press combined with deadlift combined with power clean, which is the Linda workout in CrossFit, right? It's like 10, 10 bench, 10 deadlift, 10 power clean, then nine, 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 then eight, 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 et cetera. And you, there's a certain amount of weight, heavy weights. Well, let's say that I'm beat. Let's say my heart rate variability and my heck or out of check, and I'm just tired, then what I'm going to do is that exact same workout with the weights cut in half. And I'm going to slow way freaking down and go very slow through the workout. And sometimes I'll literally do baby weights, you know, pink dumbbell weights, the same movements, though, 
just breathe, et cetera. I'll give you guys one other hint here too. Yellow days should be able to, you should be able to keep your mouth shut the entire time and only breathe through your nose. This is how you can regulate your intensity. This actually has benefit too because nasal breathing increases nitric oxide production in the body and also helps you to build more CO2 tolerance, which is a good thing. A lot of people don't know this because a high CO2 level in the body, it's CO2 tolerance that actually helps unload oxygen. So on yellow days, you're still training and I use nasal breathing only on yellow days to help condition me and actually um, give me some uh, you know, boost to my nervous system. So I know I'm going green when I have to open my mouth, right? And so on these yellow days, I keep my nose and only do nasal breathing uh, during that time. And that also can help me. But I don't necessarily alter my, my workout in terms of what I have on the schedule. I just alter the intensity by which I do it. So I might say, yeah. all right, I'm going to set a time cap of 30 minutes today. I'm done after 30 minutes regardless because my HRV is telling me that and my hex out of check. And I'm going to decrease my weights by 50%. I'm still in there. I still move. I still get to practice some of the nervous system uh, movement patterns with some of the weights like power clean and stuff like that, but I'm not going super intense. So these are just tools that you can use. By the way, if you're a trainer working with a client and you see that they're dealing with this, then let's say you got an hour to train them. Then all you need to do is essentially, if you see that their heck is out of check or you're monitoring their HRV, which by the way, you can with some of these apps, um, what you then can do is essentially be like, all right, I've got a window of 15-minute warm-up, 15-minute cool-down, and then this 30-minute of exercise in between, what you can then do is basically either make those yellow workouts or green workouts based on this or extend that 15-minute warm-up and cool-down to 20 minutes and 20 minutes and shorten the gap in mm -hmm. the middle. You're still working them out. They're still getting all the benefits, but you're just being smarter about working with the way their metabolism is uh, working and teaching you. And that way you can customize this to each person. Sometimes maybe they're only doing a 10 minute, 10 minutes of an intense workout that day. And the rest is sort of movement orientation, movement patterns, warm up, you know, mobility drills and that kind of stuff, which can be done and be highly beneficial. Beautiful, man. Very helpful stuff, Jade. So Jade, for everyone interested in your eat more, exercise more, eat less, exercise less model. I know you have a lot of online programs. Where can people be finding out more about these programs? Yeah, that particular, if you want to get more in, in depth with that particular concept, I have a book called Lose Weight Here. Terrible name, but uh, <laughs> if you ever get into the publishing world, you guys know I didn't control that. That wouldn't have been my necessary, my first choice, but it goes through that. You also could check out my blog at metabogeffect.com. But the best place to find me, and if you want to ask me questions directly, it's easy for me to interact with people on Instagram, where I know a lot of people are spending their time right now, at Jade Tita on Instagram, and my blog, MetabolicEffect.com, as well as my book, Lose Weight Here. It's probably where you'll, um, you'll want to look. I also have a website, JadeTita.com, but like honestly, those of you guys who really want to uh, get to know my work probably the best place to follow me is Instagram. Uh, you'll get a good sense of uh, all my areas of expertise. It's awesome, man. Real quick, what are the next steps for you with your jtita.com? Well, you know, it's interesting, man. I, I'm glad you're asking that because I have gotten to the point where I've metabolism work. I love it. I'll keep mm -hmm. doing it. 
but uh, we t touched on it a little bit. The mindset stuff is very important to me, something I've been doing since 18 when I went through my first breakup. So um, I'm now working on my first self-help, self-development book. So, you know, I look at it like this, Ben, and maybe you can tell me this, but there's a lot of guys and girls out there in the world who are, um, you know, uh, very thoughtful, philosophical, activist, you know, kind, generous people who don't necessarily vibe, but they, you know, they, they find the, the iron and the fitness game as spiritual and enlightening as the yoga mat, let's say, right? Mm -hmm. I like both. Yeah. I'm a fitness eclectic, but I fall squarely in that thing. And I think there's a place there that as spiritual and enlightening as the yoga mat, let's say, right? Mm -hmm. I like both. Yeah. I'm a fitness eclectic, but I fall squarely in that thing. And I think there's a place there that is a nice niche that I'd like to talk about. So um, my moniker, a lot of people call me the meathead philosopher. I do a lot of uh, ph philosophy and self-help and self-development. And that's where I've been headed in the previous years. I won't move away from fitness and metabolism because like you, just love it. It's my game. I've been doing it for so long. But um, I really like uh, touching deeply into why the hell we're all doing this stuff in the first yes. place. Right? We got to have meaning and purpose in our lives. You're a teacher. I'm a teacher. Part of the reason we're even here talking is because this is part of our meaning and what you and I want to put out as our legacy in the world. And I think a lot of people are, especially in this game, actually, a lot of people who just chase vanity concerns and things like that. Part of the reason they never feel fulfilled is because they are not actually creating meaning in their lives. You don't find meaning, you create meaning and they're not able to do it. And I'm teaching a lot more of that. I'm finding some, a lot of love as I've had success in business and business coaching and all that kind of stuff. I'm doing more of that kind of stuff. That's great to hear. And that's definitely something that I'm becoming increasingly interested in. And, you know, the more time you spend around people, the longer you're in this industry, the more you realize that it's less and less about, and I talk about this plenty on the show, but the more you realize it's less and less about the actual exercise and eating. And it's more and more about our belief system and emotional trauma and all of these things that happen uh, and we experience throughout our lives that is you know why we're the way that we are and why we want or seemingly want the things that we want and and uh, so I think that mindset is really a huge step in breaking through for a lot of people their weight loss barriers yeah and um, I'll say this to kind of wrap up and it kind of speaks to what you you're saying but imagine all of us fitness people imagine we go in to a workout it's a crazy kick-ass workout. And we walk out of that workout and we say, I'm never doing that workout again. Matter of fact, I'm never going to do that exercise again. And we stay away from it. This is what psychologically people do. They, get, mm -hmm. they go through divorce. They have uh, upset. They have childhood trauma. They have all these things. And they go, I'm never doing that workout again. When in reality, the pain is the path. This is a very stoic philosophy. The obstacle is the way. The pain is the yeah. path. Your suffering is the source. Same way. So Fitness and weightlifting is actually a metaphor for life. We don't avoid the tough stuff in the gym. We chase the tough stuff in the gym because we know that's what gets us more fit and more functional. It's the same in life. You don't avoid the tough stuff in life. You chase the stuff, tough stuff in life. You chase your fears. You overcome your fear. I call it the fear PR. Just like you chase a personal record in lifting, we should be chasing personal records in fear. And this is sort of the the world that I think I'm getting into now. So I, it just made me think of that as a way to wrap up. Like that's who we are as people yeah. in order to get stronger in the gym or in life, we need to attack what is difficult and stop running from it. 
It's a beautiful analogy, man. And I appreciate you sharing that. And man, I will definitely want to have you back on the show to talk more into the mindset aspect because it's, as we both agree, it's so important. With that said, man, thank you again so much for your time, your knowledge. It's been really enlightening for me and I guarantee it's been really valuable for our listeners. So I appreciate it. Yeah, I appreciate you too, bro. Thank you for your work and doing what you do. It's making a difference and I appreciate you. Thanks for having me on, brother. You take care. Talk to you soon. Thank you so much for listening. And if you found this content valuable, here are four ways I can help you in your nutrition journey for free. One, grab a free copy of my Fat Loss Fix Guide at fatlossfixguide.com. Two, join my free group at smartnutritionmadesimple.com. Three, subscribe to my YouTube channel at smartnutritionmadesimpletv.com. Four, leave a five-star rating and positive review so that we can gain access to more nutrition experts ready to share their knowledge with you and ultimately help more people make smart nutrition simple. 